You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear this podcast at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 271 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Art and Theory of Art, translated by Dorrit Winter and Clifford Venno. This is Lecture 10.6, the tenth part of the book in the sixth of eight lectures entitled Sensory Suprasensory, Spiritual Knowledge and Artistic Creativity, given in Vienna on June 1, 1918. Several friends who were present at my Munich lectures about the relationship between spiritual science and art were of the view that I should also speak here in Vienna about the thoughts I expressed there. And in agreeing to this, I ask that what I am about to say this evening be taken entirely as it is meant, that is, in a modest form, with the intention of providing only aphoristic remarks about various things concerning the relationship between what we can call modern clairvoyance, as striven for by anthroposophically oriented spiritual science, and artistic creativity and the essence of art appreciation. First of all, a certain preconception accompanies the kind of consideration about to be made now. Preconceptions are not always without cause. There is a certain basis for the preconception that is founded on the notion that actually artistic creativity, artistic enjoyment, and artistic perception want nothing to do with any sort of view of art, with any sort of knowledge of art. And many who are involved in art are of the opinion that the basis of artistic creativity, as well as the artistic enjoyment that they ought to nurture, will be harmed if they apply too many thoughts, concepts, or ideas to the artist's experience. Mind you, I believe that this preconception about everything that can be called scientific aesthetics in the usual sense is justified. It seems to me that this science is avoided by artistic views somewhat rightfully, because genuine artistic feeling actually atrophies, is impaired by everything that points in any way toward a scientific treatment carried out in the conventional sense. On the other hand, however, we live in an age during which, out of a certain world historical necessity, Much of what has until now worked unconsciously in human beings must now become conscious. Just as we are hardly able to place the social and societal relationships between human beings in the light of mythology, as was the case in earlier times, but instead are compelled by the progress of human evolution to seek refuge in the real understanding of what pulses through historical development If we want to recognize what social structure, societal community, and so forth signifies among people, so also is it necessary to raise up into consciousness much of what was sought, and rightly so, in a more or less conscious or unconscious manner, in the instinctive reign of human imagination and the like. It would be raised up even if we did not want it to be, If, however, it were raised up in a manner contrary to creative progress, 
then the very thing that is to be avoided would take place, namely an impairment of the intuitively artistic, an impairment that is just what is to be avoided by living artistry. I am not speaking as an aesthetician, nor as an artist. I am speaking as the representative of spiritual scientific research, as the representative of the kind of worldview that is permeated by the notion that progressing human development will more and more penetrate knowingly into the real spiritual world, which is the foundation of our sense world. I am not talking about some sort of metaphysical speculation. I am not talking about some sort of philosophy. Rather, I am talking about what I might call supra-sensory experience. I think it will not take much longer for people to realize that all mere philosophical speculation and all logical or scientific striving is unsuitable for penetrating spiritual realms. I believe that we are now in an epoch that will take it for granted that there are slumbering forces in the human soul and that these slumbering forces can be brought forth from this soul in a completely systematically regulated way. In several of my books, for example, titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, CW10, titled Riddles of the Soul, CW21, and titled The Riddle of Man, CW20, I have described how these forces slumbering in the human soul can be brought forth. So I understand spiritual knowledge is something that is basically not yet present, that currently can be considered only by a few people, that is not based on a continuation of already existing knowledge, whether mystical or scientific, but rather on the acquisition of a special kind of human knowledge, based on the human being achieving by means of a methodical awakening of certain soul forces slumbering within him, a condition of consciousness that relates to ordinary waking life as this waking life relates to sleeping or dreaming. Presently we know only these two polar conditions of human consciousness, the dull, chaotic sleep consciousness, which only apparently seems to be empty and muted, and day consciousness, from waking to falling asleep. We can connect the images from dream life to physical reality when the will nature of the human being, which brings him into a relationship with the things of the environment, falls asleep. In the same way, by developing further, humanity will achieve an awakening from this day consciousness into what I call a clairvoyant consciousness, in which we do not have outer objects and events before us, but rather a real spiritual world that is the basis of our physical world. Philosophers want to deduce it, but one cannot deduce it. One can only experience it. And one cannot experience spiritual surroundings while awake, just as one cannot experience physical surroundings while dreaming, not through mysticism, not through abstract philosophy, but only by bringing one's soul state into a different condition, by going from dream life into ordinary waking consciousness. Thus we speak of a spiritual world from which the soul spiritual proceeds, just as the physical bodily proceeds from the sense world. Naturally, such spiritual research, with its idiosyncrasies, is presently unrecognized, 
After all, people are such that they judge what appears before them according to the ideas they already have. Some even according to the words they already have. They want to connect to something familiar. That is not the case as regards the results of clairvoyant consciousness, for it is not what is familiar. Clairvoyant consciousness could also be called spiritual sight or visionary consciousness, if the word were not so misunderstood. And I do not mean anything like superstition. What comes from clairvoyance is judged by what people already know. All sorts of dubious things have been attributed to it, like hallucinations, mediums, and so forth. What I mean here has absolutely nothing to do with any of that. These things I just mentioned are the products of a sick soul life, a soul life that is too deeply anchored in the body and leads any old picture from the physical body into the soul. What I call clairvoyant consciousness takes precisely the opposite path. Hallucinatory consciousness goes down from the ordinary soul state into the body. Clairvoyance goes up over the ordinary soul state, lives and weaves only in the soul spiritual, makes the soul entirely free of the life of the body. In our ordinary consciousness, only thinking is free of the life of the body. Many philosophers deny this because they do not believe that the human being can develop an activity free of the body. That is the point of departure, clairvoyant consciousness which develops upward into the spiritual world where there is nothing physical, can be cultivated. This clairvoyant consciousness is in no way related to anything of the nature of a medium or visionary. Instead, it is strongly related to real, genuine, artistic understanding of the world. This is what I would hope and yearn for, that these two paths of human understanding real, genuine clairvoyance and artistic experience could be bridged in an unpedantic artistic way, whether in the creative production or the appreciation of art. For someone living within clairvoyance, the experience is absolutely that the source, the real source out of which the artist creates, is exactly the same as that from which the clairvoyant, the observer of the spiritual world, draws his experiences. It is only that the manner in which the clairvoyant tries to shape his experiences in concepts and thoughts is different from the creativity of the artist, a considerable difference about which we may still speak today. But the source, this has to be emphasized, from which artist and clairvoyant draw is in reality one and the same. Before taking up this fundamental question, I would like to make some preliminary remarks that might seem trivial, but that have no other claim than to show that an artistic worldview is not something that contributes to life merely arbitrarily. For the person who strives for a certain totality in life, the artistic worldview is like something that belongs to life just as much as outer Philistine activity. A worthy human existence is unthinkable, without the introduction of artistic feeling into our cultural life. It is a matter of really acknowledging that wherever we go in life, there is the latent urge to grasp the world aesthetically, artistically. 
Admittedly, we often do not bring to consciousness the artistic experience that subtly accompanies our existence. It lives rather under the threshold of consciousness. If I am to visit someone and I come into his room and the room has red walls, red wallpaper, and he comes and talks to me about the silliest things, or perhaps he does not talk at all or is utterly boring, then I feel that an untruth exists. It remains entirely in the feeling. It does not become a thought, but I feel that there is an untruth. As odd and paradoxical as it may sound, if someone wallpapers his room in red, he will disappoint me if he does not put forward some meaningful thoughts in the red room where he receives me. Naturally, this does not have to happen in reality. It does not have to happen, but it accompanies our soul life. If, on the other hand, we enter a room full of blue and someone bubbles over with words, not letting us get a word in edgewise, and considers himself alone to be of importance, we again take it as a contradiction to the blue and or violet walls of his room. Outer prosaic reality need not be like this, but there is a special aesthetic truth that is as I have described it. If I am snowed in somewhere, or rather not snowed in, but properly invited to a dinner, and I see that the table is laid with red table settings, is painted red, then I have the feeling that these are gourmands who eat for the sake of eating, who enjoy their food. If I find a blue table setting, I have the feeling they are not eating for the sake of eating, but want to converse while they are eating and to allow the conversation and the rest of the social gathering to be accompanied by the food. These are real feelings that always live in the subconscious. If I meet a lady on the street wearing a blue dress and she lets loose and behaves aggressively instead of being reserved, then I find this to be in contradiction to the blue dress, whereas I would find it natural if I were to meet such a lady dressed in red. I would also find it natural if a lady with curly hair were cheeky. There is something that lives in the soul as a basic tone. What I want to say with these trivial examples is only that an aesthetic feeling which we cannot eliminate exists, even if we do not perceive it. Our mood depends on it. We are in a good or bad mood. We know about this good or bad mood, but the reasons for it can only be brought to consciousness by someone who examines things more closely. Therein, actually, is contained what one might call the necessity of going from a natural aesthetic feeling to a life of art. Art simply approaches natural life, just like any other human mode of observation. The clairvoyant, who has developed the strengths of which I spoke, has a special way of experiencing art, and I believe that something can follow from this special experience the clairvoyant has with respect to art, even if it is not artistic but rather elevated to the evaluation and understanding of art. The clairvoyant who has awakened his soul so that he is surrounded by the spiritual world is able to divert, to distract his soul life from all that is merely outer sensory reality. Speaking generally rather than individually, if I have a part of an outer physical object or activity before me, I am able to exclude the perception of the space and place where the object is, so that I see nothing physical in that space. 
This is the real abstraction that is entirely possible for the clairvoyant. But this can be done only with natural objects, not with what has been truly created artistically, and I consider this to be significant. As regards a work of art, the clairvoyant is unable entirely to shut out the object, the artistic activity, as he can shut out an outer activity. True artistic creation, permeated by spirit, remains in the consciousness of the clairvoyant spiritually. This is the first thing that can convince us that true artistic creativity and clairvoyant perception come from the same source. But there is much more that is significant in this direction. You see, if the clairvoyant applies the means that develop his soul, he will arrive at an entirely different mode of thinking and willing. Using ordinary expressions, one can, of course, say that thinking and willing become inward, but this, in quotes, inward, is actually not correct, because one is really outside. One spreads one's entire observation out over a truly spiritual world. A different thinking and a different willing occur in clairvoyance. Thinking does not proceed in abstract thoughts. Abstract thoughts are something suitable for the physical world, used to register its phenomena, to find its scientific laws, and so forth. The clairvoyant does not think in such thoughts, in abstractions. He thinks in thoughts that are actually weaving pictures. This is at present hard to understand, because people still do not really know what is meant by a thinking that does not think any abstract thoughts, but instead follows the nature of the things, lives in the forms and configurations of the things. We can compare this thinking with the forming of surfaces and curves as a mathematician, but one who becomes inwardly alive, as in the elemental condition that Goethe attempted to achieve in his theory of metamorphosis. Today this inner clairvoyant thinking can become far livelier. This clairvoyant thinking is extraordinarily related to what underlies certain realms of creative art, namely sculpture and architecture. Remarkably, as regards this new thinking, this new conceptualizing that the clairvoyant acquires for himself, he feels himself to be related to nothing as much as to the forms that the truly artistic architect develops and to the forms that the sculptor must take as the basis of his creative work. Something like an architectural conceptualizing or a conceptualizing in sculptural forms is really suited to grasp the world clairvoyantly and follow the things in such a way that one learns to understand them in their spiritual inwardness, learns to overcome oneself, learns to raise oneself purely into the spiritual world. With abstract thoughts we cannot discover anything about the inner nature of things. With respect to his new thinking, the clairvoyant feels related to the architect and sculptor. He must think the world in the kind of spirit forming that is the unconscious or subconscious basis of the sculptor's or architect's creative work. This then prompts research about where this actually comes from. We ask ourselves, what does the clairvoyant actually make use of there? He uses certain latent senses 
senses that are present in ordinary life, but faintly, without functioning in a fully pronounced way. For example, we have a sense we could call the sense of balance. We live in it, but only in faint consciousness, not in full consciousness. When we take a step, or bend, or stretch a hand, connected to this taking of a step, to everything that somehow brings us into relationship with space, a faint, not quite conscious perception arises, as is the case with seeing and hearing. It is only that these senses are much louder and more distinctly perceptible. But the sense of balance and the sense of movement related to it are faint, because they are not specific to our inner life, but instead mediate our placement in the cosmos. How I stand in the cosmos, whether I am approaching the sun or going away from it, whether I perceive myself approaching the light or distancing myself, feel the light somehow muted, this feeling oneself to be part of the whole world can only be described like this. The human being in his movement is formed as a microcosm out of the macrocosm, and as microcosm experiences his placement into the macrocosm through such a sense. Working in sculpture is nothing other than transforming the perceptions of an ordinarily latent sense into outer surface forms and the like. That which we human beings always carry with us in our feeling for the world is unconsciously fashioned in architecture and sculpture. As strange as such a remark appears at first, anyone who can really research the relationship between individual architectural shapes, what lives in the imagination of the sculptor when he forms surfaces, whoever can research this knows that what I have just indicated is mysteriously involved in this creative work. The clairvoyant does nothing more than make fully conscious this sense of placing oneself into the world. He develops it just as the architect or the sculptor is artistically inclined to shape outer materials into forms by means of what he feels in his body. Let me say that from this vantage point we recognize certain things. In this regard I could speak not just for many hours, but could go on speaking for days. Whoever acquires a feeling for sculptural art knows that everything that is copied outwardly is actually not really sculptural. If we try, not abstractly but feelingly, to answer the question of what actually lies in sculptural activity, we cannot say there is much meaning in a surface that replicates a surface as it exists in external nature, in the human body, and so forth. That is not the case. What is experienced in the sculptural activity is the life of the surface itself. Once we have recognized the difference between a surface that has been curved only once and one that is curved a second time, we know that no surface that is curved only once can have any sort of sculptural life within it. Only one in which the curved surface is curved a second time can express the life of the surface. This inner expression, not symbolically but artistically, this inner expression that does not copy or stick to the model, is what forms the basis of the secret of the surface itself. This raises a question that at the present time is as unclear as possible. Today we see countless people not just appreciating art, 
which is altogether right, but we see countless people judging art almost professionally. Now, I believe, based on the conditions underlying today's considerations, that I really will not need to express a critical opinion, but instead must simply express what comes ever more into consciousness. I do not believe that someone who needed clay once, who is merely a critic, can ever get any sort of idea about the essence of sculpture. Although I do believe that anyone can appreciate art, I do not believe that anyone can judge art unless they have made investigations that have revealed the artistic forms inherent in the material. For in reality what is realized through the substance is very different from the mere copying of a model or the like. The mere copying of a model is, therefore, worth no more than the imitation of a nightingale song through some sort of tones. True art begins where, instead of imitation, there is activity that comes from new creativity. In architecture, not in music, but very much in sculpture, we depend on the model. But whatever is related to the model by imitation is something other than art. Art only begins where there can be no more talk of imitation, and spiritual working and weaving, grasped unconsciously by the artist and consciously by the clairvoyant, is the common element bridging the clairvoyant grasp of the world and artistic creation. The only difference being that it can also be expressed spiritually by the clairvoyant whereas the artist who cannot express it verbally, but instead has it unconsciously in his hands and in his imagination, incorporates it into matter. Very different is the clairvoyant's relationship to the arts of poetry and music. It is interesting that especially as regards the art of music, when the clairvoyant enters the realm of art, clairvoyantly, his experiences take on a very different form. I need to insert a remark here about this clairvoyant experience, namely that I do not mean continually, but only in those moments when one puts oneself into this clairvoyant condition. That is why it does not hold that the clairvoyant can experience music in this way at all times, but only when he wants to. At other times he experiences music as any other person would. He can compare what he experiences musically in the ordinary way, with what he perceives when he experiences the musical work of art clairvoyantly. It should be noted that, as regards musical works of art, the clairvoyant understands that music is to be experienced entirely as a matter of soul, indeed in such a way that the concrete soul nature feels itself connected with the music. Earlier I said that the clairvoyant develops a new capacity for thinking. He thinks in such a way that he feels himself to be at home in architectural and sculptural creation. Insofar as the clairvoyant does not only think but also develops feeling and formative forces in such a way that they become interconnected, we cannot speak of a separation of feeling and willing. As regards the clairvoyant, we must speak of a feeling-willing, and a willing feeling of a soul experience that combines these two, which go side by side in ordinary consciousness, into a totality of feeling willing. 
Sometimes this feeling is developed with greater nuance toward willing, at other times with more nuance toward feeling. When the clairvoyant, having raised his soul into the spiritual world, places himself into the musical element, he experiences everything that arises with the nuance of feeling in what is truly musical, genuinely musical. He experiences it in such a way that he does not separate the objective tone from the subjective experience of the tone, but rather that these are united in the clairvoyant experience, that the soul streams as the intermingling tones do, only everything is spiritualized. He experiences his soul poured out into the musical element. He knows that what he experiences through the newly developed feeling willing comes from the same source from which the musician draws what he enchants in the substance of the tone. It is interesting, particularly in regard to music, to research the reason why the creative musician unconsciously places the spiritual into his material. In music, the underlying element is revealed. Everything that arises unconsciously in the life of the soul joins very differently into the wonderful totality of our organism. We are realizing more and more that our organism ought not to be regarded as conventional biology and physiology regard it. Instead, it must be regarded as a reflection of a spiritual archetype. The human being steps into existence through birth, through conception, and makes use of that which he receives through hereditary laws and of that which descends from the spiritual world and relates to the physical in such a way that the physical really becomes a reflection of the spiritual. How this happens I cannot explain today. It is, however, a very objective fact that in our organism such an event takes place, an event that proceeds according to laws that reflect the spiritual. This is very particularly notable as regards music. We believe that the ear is involved in the appreciation of music and possibly the nervous system of our brain, but only in a very external view. In this realm, physiology is absolutely at the beginning. It will first reach a certain height when artistic thoughts flow into these realms of physiology and biology. The basis is something quite different from the process of hearing or from what happens in the nervous system of the brain. The basis of musical feeling can be described like this. Every time we breathe out, the brain, the space of the head, the inner space of the head, is obliged, through the breathing, to let its cerebrospinal fluid descend through the spinal cord tissue down to the region of the diaphragm. A descent is caused. Conversely, breathing in causes the opposite to happen. Cerebrospinal fluid is driven toward the brain. A continually rhythmic rising and falling of the cerebrospinal fluid takes place. If this were not happening, the brain would not lose as much of its weight as is necessary for it to avoid crushing the blood vessels beneath it. If it did not lose so much of its weight, it would crush our blood vessels. The cerebrospinal fluid flows up and down in the area of the arachnoid membrane in expansions that are elastic or less elastic, so that while rising and falling the cerebrospinal fluid flows across the less elastic expansions, 
the more or less elastic expansions. This enables a quite marvelous rhythmic activity. The entire human organism, apart from the head and the limbs, expresses itself in this inner rhythm. Whatever streams into the ear as tone, whatever lives in us as the thought of tone, becomes music by encountering the inner music that is activated because the entire organism is a remarkable musical instrument, as I have just described it. If I were to describe everything to you, I would describe a wonderful inner human music that, though it is not heard, is experienced inwardly. What we experience as music is fundamentally nothing but the approach of an inner singing of the human organism. This human organism is, as regards what I have just described, an image of the macrocosm. We bear within ourselves, in the most concrete laws that are stricter than the laws of nature, this lyre of Apollo on which the cosmos plays in us. Our organism is not alone what biologists acknowledge, but is the most wonderful musical instrument. All sorts of crude things can be cited to show that the human being is constructed according to remarkable cosmic lawfulness. I will cite the most trivial. In one minute we average 18 breaths. Let us calculate how much that is in a 24-hour day. That is 25,920 breaths, that many breaths in an entire day. Let us calculate a human day, a lifespan. Is it not so that although many people surpass this age, we can figure that a human day is 70 to 71 years? That is the cosmic day of the human being. Now try to calculate how many 24-hour days that gives us. 25,920. As many as the number of breaths you draw in a day. The world breathes us out and in, when we are born and when we die. The world takes just as many breaths during a human day as we do during our 24-hour day. Take the Platonic year. The sun rises in a particular sign of the zodiac. The vernal equinox advances. In ancient days the sun rose in the sign of the bull, then in Aries, now in Pisces. Modern astronomy makes schemes. This vernal equinox seems, admittedly, it only seems so, but that is not the point, to go around the entire sky. It moves around. Then, after a substantial number of years, it arrives back at the same point, that is, after 25,920 years. The Platonic year is reckoned as 25,920 years. Take a human day of 71 years, it numbers 25,920 individual days. Take a single 24-hour day in the life of a human being. It numbers 25,920 breaths. You see that we are incorporated into the cosmic rhythm. I believe, and from this point of view, many observations of this sort could be made, that there is no abstract religious idea that could evoke as much fervor as the consciousness of having one's own outer physical organism placed in such a way into the macrocosm, into the cosmic structure. The clairvoyant tries, spiritually, to penetrate this being placed into the cosmos. It works itself out in our inner music. 
what emerges from the organism there, what surges up into the soul, the resonance of the soul, the resonating with the cosmos, is the unconscious element of artistic creation. The whole world resonates when we create in a truly artistic way. There you have the common source of art and clairvoyance. In the artist it is unconscious as he works cosmic lawfulness into the material. In the clairvoyant it is conscious as he tries to see what is purely spiritual through clairvoyant consciousness. By studying these things in this way, we learn to recognize why what is inherent in the artist's material enters unconsciously into artistic creation. Just as inner music lives in the organism of our breathing and becomes outer music in art, so also with poetry. Their contemporary physiology is very, very far behind. For what ought to be studied so as to gain clarity is not the physiology of the senses, not the physiology of the nerves, but the realm of the border where brain and nervous system meet. There, just at the boundary, is that physiological realm where, if the human being is disposed, one always needs a disposition for art, the source of poetic creation lies. And the clairvoyant finds the realm of poetic creation in particular when he enters that realm of his inner experience where the feeling-willing leans more toward the side of the will. Usually the will expresses itself in the entire physical body. As regards imagination, the will lives where brain and nerves and sense organs collide. This is where the poetic images are conceived. When that is loosened from the body, it is through feeling-willing that the clairvoyant enters the realm that harbors the same source, from which the poet also creates. That is why the clairvoyant, through this feeling-willing, sense of his, if he has acquired the sole condition necessary to enjoy poetry, feels himself to be in a curious state, in the presence of poetry. He must see what the poet has formed. This leads to the fact that at the moment when the poet puts down one thing or another and does not create out of reality, putting down instead something that is merely thought up, assembled, unreal, inartistic, in that moment the clairvoyant sees in shapes and figures what is put down. If one is not clairvoyant, one does not perceive it so coarsely when the dramatist presents an unreal figure. For example, the clairvoyant can perceive Tekla in the title Wallenstein trilogy, in no other way than as if made of papier-mâché, so that when he looks at her he continually sees her folding at the knees. And this is with a great poet. Every divergence from reality, every not showing of reality, is perceived, so that the clairvoyant has to recreate in sculptural form what the poet creates, and has to remove his thinking from the sculpture. As regards the poet, the clairvoyant dives down into an inner sculpture. That is the oddity, that here, as regards poetry, the clairvoyant consciousness creates sculptures, so that the clairvoyant sees caricatures in what often becomes very famous. In this or that dramatic achievement, where it is not noticed that the figures are merely puppets stuffed with straw, the clairvoyant can do nothing other than see puppets stuffed with straw 
marching across the stage or appearing before him when he reads the play. Thus the clairvoyant has to endure pain on account of what is otherwise praised as a fad, for he sees what is created without true sculptural form in poetry. Christian Morgenstern, who strove for clairvoyance, uttered a fine remark. It is in the last volume of his posthumous work titled Stufen. There he says, when he wants to characterize his own soul, that he feels related to the architect, the sculptor. The feeling is that if we strive for clairvoyance, poetry is transformed into sculpture. If we see things in this way, we will never be able to believe that clairvoyance, with its inner mobility and receptivity for spiritual beings, could affect the artist harmfully and debilitatingly, but only as a good friend and patron. They cannot disturb each other. Only things that flow into one another can disturb each other. But the clairvoyant can never let his clairvoyance flow disturbingly into his artistry. He can only penetrate it clairvoyantly. They are entirely separated from one another. Flowing from the same source, they can never disturb each other in life. This is not appreciated enough today. It is difficult for the clairvoyant to make himself understood. He must use language. But with language we have something very strange. It only seems to be a unity. In reality it is a threefold entity. For we experience it on three levels. First of all, we have language that we use to make ourselves understood, one person to the next, in our Philistine life. And to say the words that must flow from person to person for the sake of this Philistine life. Anyone with a living feeling for language, anyone who can experience language from the perspective of clairvoyance, has no choice but to experience this as a repression of language. We might say, that person rants about life. He merely acknowledges that not everything can be perfect and thus fails to achieve perfection in a realm where imperfection must necessarily prevail. In outer physical life, it is definitely the case that there must be imperfections. Trees must not only grow, but also die. In life, imperfection must always be present so that perfection can arise. Language has been pushed down from its original level, has been pushed down to a subordinate stage. And with the way we use language in life, we could only become a schoolteacher who makes a straw-like being out of a withered, desiccated Philistine condition. Beyond that, we would achieve nothing. Words cannot have the value they have through their own nature, for that which language is as the property of a folk lives on its own level, and on its own level is a work of art, not a prosaic creation. It does not exist so as to provide understanding in daily life. As expression of the spirit of a folk, it is a work of art. We degrade it, and must do so, when we push something that is actually an artistic creation down into the prosaic aspect of life. It only achieves its being in the poetic creations of a folk, when the spirit of the language truly reigns. That is the second way that language really lives. The third way can be experienced only at the level of clairvoyance. 
A clairvoyant is in an unusual situation. For he would like to express what is seen, but has no words to do so. In reality, the words do not exist. We cannot express what we see clairvoyantly in the same way as we learn to speak a language and to use words to express our intended meaning. Ordinary words are not made for expressing what we see clairvoyantly. That is why the clairvoyant must necessarily express some things very differently. He always grapples with language in order to say what he wants to say. He must choose the path so that he can clothe things in a sentence that approaches the expression of what he wants to say. He must utter a second sentence that brings something similar. He must reckon with the goodwill of his audience if the one sentence is to illuminate the other. If this goodwill is missing, then people want to reproach him with various contradictions. Someone who has to express something truly clairvoyant must speak in contradictions, and one contradiction must illuminate the other, for the truth lies in the middle. By entering into this, we come linguistically to something that also expresses in this realm the relationship between artistry and clairvoyance. The clairvoyant must indeed reckon with the goodwill that seeks to penetrate further into how he says things rather than what he says. He makes an effort to say much more in the way he speaks about something than in what he says about it. Eventually he manages to return to the creative spirit of language that reigned before there was any sort of language, to live once more into the sounds, into the genius of the sounds, to dive down into them. He sees how a vowel encloses itself, how a vowel soon flows into this or that language. The seer is obliged, in order to return to the creative condition of the language of a folk, to express himself more in the how than the what. Thereby it is possible to distinguish clairvoyantly and artistically the levels that stand side by side in language. Because clairvoyance and artistry are experienced separately, they cannot disturb one another. Instead, they can promote one another because they live side by side, illuminating one another reciprocally. A time will come in which art will no longer bear enmity toward clairvoyance, and neither will clairvoyance bear enmity toward art. For everything that is false clairvoyance, unfortunately, leans too much toward a suprasensory philistinism. To take everything not seen outwardly through the senses, and clothe it in visionary clairvoyance, that is the enemy of art. But whatever is truly comprehended of the spiritual world through clairvoyant consciousness is indeed the same as what lives in artistic creativity and aesthetic feeling. One generally believes that the clairvoyance meant here is something alien to the human being. It stands in the midst of human life, but in a realm where it is not noticed. There is a big difference between observing a plant, a mineral, an animal, or another human being. Outer things affect us by means of what they are with the help of our sense organs. When one human being faces another human being, the senses work quite differently. In our time, people are completely averse to the spiritual. They say that some realms have overcome materialism. Yes, people speak of this today. You can easily find such analyses, but they say, when I am facing a human being, 
I see how his nose is formed, and according to a nose formed like this, I conclude that he is a human being, a conclusion based on analogy. In reality, there is no such thing. Someone with clairvoyant perception knows where the conclusions lie. Such conclusions, by means of analogies, do not exist. The soul of a human being is perceived directly. The outer sensory element is such that it cancels itself out. It is very important to apply this to art because it illustrates the juxtaposition of clairvoyance and art. When we face a human being, we look at him and do not know that what appears of him appears in such a way that he cancels himself out, that he makes himself spiritually transparent. Every time I stand face to face with a human being, I see him clairvoyantly. For the clairvoyant, there is a particular problem when being approached by a human being, namely the mysterious incarnadine. When a human being steps toward him, the clairvoyant sees this incarnadine not at rest, but in oscillating motion. When facing someone, he sees a condition in which what usually appears in a person fades away, in which the person becomes warmer and redder than he is when moving back and forth in his physical form, so that it appears to the clairvoyant as if the human form changes, reddening with shame, becoming pale with fear, as if he continually establishes his normal condition between fear and shame, just as the pendulum has its point of stability between its upswing and its downswing. Incarnadine, as it appears outwardly, is merely a middle stage. The visible incarnadine is bound to something of which the human being is unconscious. It enables a first unconscious seeing behind the scenes. Just as in the human incarnadine the clairvoyant sees something soulful in the sensory, a sensory suprasensory is what the clairvoyant sees in the incarnadine, so all color and form is transformed bit by bit so that he sees it spiritually. He sees it in such a way that in everything that is otherwise color or makes an impression of form, he perceives something inward. The most elementary aspect is found in the sensory-moral part of Goethe's theory of color. The entire theory of color becomes an experience in which the clairvoyant perceives what is spiritual. He also experiences the rest of the spiritual world in such a way that he has the same experiences that he otherwise has with colors. In my title Theosophy, CW9, you will find that one sees what is spiritual in the form of a kind of aura. It is described in colors. Crude, clumsy people, without further knowledge of things, preferring to write books themselves, believe that the clairvoyant depicts the aura, depicts it by thinking there really is such a misty fog before him. What the clairvoyant has before himself is a spiritual experience. When he says the aura is blue, he says he has a soul-spiritual experience that is like seeing blue. He depicts, at any rate, everything he experiences in the spiritual world that is analogous to what can be experienced in the sensory world by way of color. This gives an indication of how the clairvoyant experiences painting. It is unlike the experience of any other art. In the presence of every other art, he has the feeling 
that he is dipping down into the artistic element itself. He has the element, proceeds to a certain limit, and there clairvoyance ends. Were the clairvoyant to continue, he would have to place this color here, that color there. He would have to tint what he experiences entirely in colors if he were to proceed. When he experiences painting, this approaches him from the other side. By painting what is formed out of light and dark, the painter, when he creates in a truly painterly way, brings his artistic working to exactly that point where painting and clairvoyance meet, where clairvoyance begins. And clairvoyance extends exactly to where we would begin to paint if we proceeded outwardly. When we have a concrete clairvoyant idea, we know. There we would have to paint this color with a brush next to it another. Then we begin to grasp the mystery of color, to grasp what is in my mystery drama titled The Portal of Initiation, CW 14, namely that the form of, is the work of color, that drawing lines is actually an artistic lie. There is no line. The ocean does not border the sky in a line, where the colors meet each other, that is the border. I can get help from a line, but it is only the result of how the colors meet. The secrets of colors are revealed. We discover that we complete an inner movement. That movement lives in what we paint. We know you can do this in no other way than by handling the blue in a particular way. We live with the inner nature of the color. That is what is special about painting that clairvoyance and art and creativity touch one another. When we understand what this realm is about, we will see that what is meant by clairvoyance can be a close companion of artistic creativity, that they stimulate and fructify one another. Mind you, it will become ever more evident that someone who has never held a brush in his hand and does not know what to do with it ought not to pass judgment on the basis of abstractions. Criticism, apart from art, critical criticism, will have to move into the background when the friendship between art and clairvoyance steps forward. But the very thing that is here meant by spiritual science is very different from what one used to and still does call aesthetics. Artists have told me that such people are called, quote, aesthetic spoilsports, close quote. That is not what is meant here. What is meant here is living in the same element as the artist, only that the clairvoyant has experiences in pure spirit of what the artist shapes. I must say this seems to be one of the many challenges facing humanity. I believe that the time in which one assumed that what is elemental and original is diminished by spiritual research will end. Christian Morgenstern said, quote, Whoever wants merely to immerse himself with feeling into what can presently be experienced of the divine spiritual, without seeking to understand it, is like an illiterate person who all his life sleeps with a primer under his pillow. We live in a time in which much that is unconscious must be raised into consciousness. Clairvoyance will stand on solid ground only when it surpasses all philosophy and feels itself to be related to art. I believe that also in this realm there is something connected to the significant questions of human evolution. 
we will realize more and more that a suprasensory world is the foundation of the sensory world. Whatever is recognized through suprasensory clairvoyance cannot be an arbitrary addition to life. Instead, Goethe's utterance based on his life experience is the truth. Quote, when nature begins to disclose her revealed secret, we experience an irresistible yearning for its worthiest interpreter, art. Close quote. Whoever wants to understand how art is part of all life, of all future evolution, whoever understands art feelingly, according to its true being, must admit that clairvoyance will in the future stand hand in hand with artists, newly inspiring and supporting them. The end of Lecture 10.6